In the 1970s, a future top-notch podcasting team was born, and then raised on military bases because their dads were in the Air Force. These Gen Xers eventually grew up and were unleashed upon the world. Today, looking forward to retirement, they survive by dishing out their opinions. If you have questions that need answers and an open mind, if you can spare 60 minutes a week, and if you have internet access, maybe you can listen to Kenyatta and Jack save the world. Hello, Ghostbusters. Yes, we would like to report an infestation of ignoramuses who are running around gleefully stupid. Can you help? I don't know about Ghostbusters, but I think we can. Listening friends, welcome back for another week of foolishness in high regard. I am Kenyatta. That gentleman 1,200 miles to the west is Jack. Hi, Jack. <laughs> Hello, Kenyatta. Hi. How are you doing? Um, Running on five hours of sleep and just recently some coffee. That, that's because you had a fun evening last night. I did. And um, listening, friends, as Jack and I were speaking offline just before we started this episode, I and a few friends went out and indulged in a comedy show last night by a comedian of the name of Joe Coy. And if you're familiar with the gentleman, you know he's very funny. And we had absolute ball. So... Like I said, that is the reason why I got five-ish hours of sleep. I don't regret a thing. That's yes. it. <laughs> and, and as we are both over the age of 29, mm -hmm. a Thursday evening of staying up late means a Friday day <laughs> of being exhausted. Correct. Because I won't, I won't be self-depreciatory and say we're not spring chickens, but late nights hit different, especially when it's a school night. So mm, y'all yeah. know if you're out there and you're of a certain age ish, you know what we mean. We feel you. We stand in solidarity. So. <laughs> yep. Yep. We definitely do. Definitely mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. That is definitely true. I did not have a fun Thursday night yeah. like you did. Uh, we normally record on Thursday. Today's a Friday. Um, I figured. And, you know, since. Kenyatta spent all that money on her tickets that it would be kind of rude to not adjust recording times if well, we wanted to keep doing this because she probably would have bought plane tickets, flew out here, she knows where I live, stabbed me, and then flew back to Virginia. I, I'm a pacifist at heart. I might have just maybe cussed you up and down and left. Also, though, I am too cute to go to jail, so well, none, of that, none of that really flies. So, But it's an interesting thought. <laughs> hmm. you know yeah, you know, right you know. Yeah. <laughs> so i think we should just probably mosey on to our wtfs and just get into it yeah let's see what's knocking this week is there's always something there always is always always well i believe it's me up to bat first this week I, so. I think so, but in the grand scheme of things, if we if we mess it up, I think 
the world will probably keep on circling the sun. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty, and, and, and I know we're all grateful for that. But either way, I'm somehow just keeping order of the smallest of things. It's a comfort, <laughs> especially at this advanced age. Anyway, so what I've got for everyone this week is something mildly funny. Okay. Tennessee Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally, who has been a long proponent against um, anything having to do with LGBTQ advancement, has been busy advancing and passing bans on gender-affirming care for transgender youth in his state and restrictions on drag shows. Now, listening, friends, if, if you've kept your ear to the ground, you know there's been I guess this is like the de rigueur trend for the first ha- the first half of 2023 is coming in hard on drag drag shows. No pun. Um, but all of a sudden, all these Republicans are so overwhelmingly concerned about drag shows corrupting the youth. And again, as we've confirmed many times over, it's not about the youth. Anyway, Lieutenant Governor McNally has been one of those people for his state of Tennessee. However, here recently, he was caught in the comment section of a young fellow on social media who happens to be gay. The young gay man was posting uh, thirst trap pictures, as young folks like to call it. This young man is 20-year-old Franklin McClure. And uh, Lieutenant Governor McNally was caught posting salacious little comments under these little thirst trap pictures. <clears throat> I, I, I'm stunned. Are you? I'm yes. Every, every time I'm like, there's no way this could ever happen again. And then it does. And I'm just shocked every time. All the time. Let's see if we can get a little, little sample of, uh, and then mind you, I say salacious. I mean, flirtatious. Okay. Right. So as best I can over radio, I would try to give a sanitized version of what these pictures are. For instance, the one I'm looking at now is a shot from the back of this young man in in all his um, but taco glory. That's not even a word, but you guys know what I mean. And Lieutenant Governor posts a comment, something to the effect of really nice or something like that. He's literally flirting with this young man in the Instagram comments on this young man's thirst trap pictures. This is the same fellow who wants to get rid of drag shows and get rid of transgender affirming care, which is health care, by the way. Mm-hmm. I, I hope nobody gets confused that that is part of health care. Um, but yeah, out in front, he doesn't want anything to do with LGBTQ. Behind the scenes, Apparently he he's part of the community behind the scenes. Very much so. Is, isn't that called being down low? He said, did "Quote correctly." You did. He said, "When he's been, of course, he's been pressed uh, for answers to this for the last few days." And uh, he said, "Quote: He's not anti-gay. 
And that the bills in question, quote, tried to limit certain things. And I think there are safeguards in those bills. I try to encourage people on my posts and I try to support people just because he, referring to the 20 year old, is gay. I also have friends that are gay and I have friends that are relatives that are gay, but I don't feel any animosity toward gay people. I think that's fairly clear. Yes, it's very clear, Lieutenant Governor. You feel no animosity whatsoever. I, I, I venture to say your feelings are, are the more considerate version. But what do I know? I, men, men lie, women lie, but facts are facts. He was flirting yeah. with that boy. I don't care what he says. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've just sort of decided after this year that the reason... Republicans are going so hard. Oh god dang it. Now I didn't I didn't mean to do that either. Mm, isn't it, it's 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 tricky, isn't it? It's tricky. Yes. <laughs> um with you know drag shows and LBGTQ plus. Oh wow, I did that in almost a flowing way. Uh sorry. And it took you a year and a half. It's fantastic. <laughs> a year and a half. Go longer than that, pal. <laughs> well, I mean, since we've been on air. <laughs> yeah. <Ish. laughs> um, I think they're putting this stuff in place and trying to ban them because in their minds, they think if they're, if they don't have those shows, they don't have to worry about accidentally driving by one and getting aroused. Let me hit you with this. And I agree with that sentiment, by the way, but here, let me hit you with this now that I've, um, nailed it. There we go again. <laughs> oh, this is difficult. I've managed to locate an actual uh, in-print comment that the fair lieutenant governor made on the young man's Instagram. Ooh. He said, oh my God, queen. You are literally always so nice. Green heart emoji, king. Like he's mad flirting in these comments and then says, I tried to encourage them. You sure do, buddy. I'm going to go ahead and bet. And this is not me trying to be in anybody's wallet because I have no idea what the Lieutenant Governor of Tennessee might make. But I have a feeling that he is somebody's behind the scenes patron. I'm just guessing. But I think my guess is pretty solid. No, I, tend to- I tend to agree with you and if it came out in the next few weeks that he's a frequent user of OnlyFans, I would not be shocked at all either. No, no. And what's completely ridiculous about this story, and I don't really know that it is, because, you know, sometimes people operate in a way that tells you they want to be caught. They don't have the guts to admit it, but they kind of want to be right. caught. His his Instagram name is his doggone name just about. Like, it makes zero sense. You couldn't mistake this name for anything else. Right. It's like Lieutenant Governor Schmil Schmeisel. <laughs> like the, re- the real Lieutenant Governor of Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, bruh. So he's not, that's the fun part. He's not even denying that he commented, but he's right. saying that he did it to be affirming. Yeah, he's being encouraging because he he likes the kids. I'm sorry, because <laughs> that's yeah, what he and, sounds like. <laughs> and, and to be 
from our point of view, this obviously is if the dude is gay, who cares, right? Yeah. The only reason that it makes any difference, and this is the thing that comes up frequently when situations like this happen when they're getting called on it. It's not that they might be gay or they might be, you know, a drag queen or whatever. That's not the issue that people on our side have. It's the hypocrisy. Yes. And the passing of laws that purposely harm other people when you are, in fact, I guess, self-hating. I don't know, but... Here's the thing, That's though. That's our issue here, not not that he, you know, who cares? Oh, yeah, no, no. And that, and you're right, it's the hypocrisy of it. But the thing of it is, the kind of bills that he's trying to push through aren't those kind of bills that would affect him as a gay man. Right. Because right. he's not transgender. Right. And because, as far as we know, he doesn't entertain drag shows. You know, if he did, all well. <laughs> Just I mean, quit. power to him if he did. Quit, what? quit doing, Pat, trying to advocate those bills that hurt other humans. Basically, because they're not hurting you. And I'm uh, again, I'm, I'm tired of them using children as human shields. This is not about right. protecting the kids. Knock it off. Yes, because if it was about protecting kids, they would certainly be more upset about kids dying in schools than they are about going to have a man dressed in sparkly makeup reading a book to them. Oh, my goodness. I just saw, and speaking of which, and I'm going off the rails just briefly, speaking of protecting the children, um, I can't even think of what state it was in, but they were showing um, this temporary reinforced room. You saw those? I saw that. It's the whiteboard, and then it slides out and forms like like a little safe room in the room, and I'm like, you can yeah, spend let's money just on spend that. Billions of dollars throughout the country, obviously throughout the country. Yeah. Putting the retrofitting classrooms with that versus, oh, I don't know, making okay. it harder for psychopaths to get guns. But what do we know? It's kind of like the jokes of Americans will do anything to not use the metric system. You know what I mean? <laughs> MAGA will do anything or conservative Republicans will do anything to prevent from maybe having to wait a couple of weeks to get a gun. That is the, that is the most, most uh, pathetic certainty that has stayed consistent in this country from, from inception until now. The demand to protect ourselves with as many guns as we can get a hold with. When, and we've talked about this at length, the Second Amendment applies to defending you and your country against invaders, not whoever you deem a threat, which is, in the vast majority of times, not a threat. Yeah. But what do we know? And yeah. You, you mean to tell me you need to go to Starbucks fully strapped up? That's the kind of threat right. you're talking about. Well, I mean, they're probably liberals if you're in starbucks so you do have to worry about that oh yeah just foaming at the mouth <laughs> I, I have a theory that somebody high up in the nra came up with the idea of that safe room i wouldn't be surprised <laughs> it's like you know there's a business opportunity here guys 
and they manage, you know, the manufacturer of those things, if you go through enough shell companies, runs back to some big gun manufacturer, cha-ching. Wouldn't surprise me, not one bit. Yeah, no, it wouldn't surprise me either. But um, back on the rails, yeah. yeah. So another fine moment in GOP hypocrisy. We, we should actually really have a subsection called GOP hypocrisy because that would be chock full. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, our, it's our monthly GOP hypocrisy segment. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> yeah, but that would end up being like an eight-hour marathon show. We should live stream that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. But there you go. There we go. Lieutenant right. Governor McNally. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> what Have do you fun. got? <laughs> Mine is a little different uh, this week. And uh, it does deal with hypocrisy, though. Mm. And it, it really just has to do with sort of hypocrisy and how i feel that this sort of goes against everything that this particular group should be going against or standing for so here we go headline a company trademarked worship leader and is now sending cease and desist letters to churches that have worship leaders as their title um what yes (laughs) I know I'm not that tired. (laughs) I know, right? Oh, my gosh. Okay, sorry. The article starts in an insane and unpredictable twist. A company has trademarked the term worship leader, and it's going after people who use it. Now, here's the thing. If, like, some sort of atheist group trademarked worship leader and then they were doing that, that would be sort of... I don't know, ironic or funny or whatever, if they were just like doing it to mess with churches. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. It is actually um, a it is a media company called Authentic Media, a Christian-owned company that is now going after and reporting posts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok of copyright infringement if anyone in their name has like worship leader or I'm a worship leader. And so, as it turns out, authentic media does own the right to worship leader, despite it being a common phrase. Back in 2016, the company filed the paperwork for the term to be uh, with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and they got it. So they do, in fact, own the name worship leader. I don't see how something that generic, though, how that got through. There must have been, wait a minute, when did that happen? 2016. Okay, I guess he wasn't president then. (laughs) When you when you think about it though, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but when you think about it, something that generic of a phrase is something that people would take for granted to not trademark. You know what I'm saying? Because people yeah. overthink stuff so much, they go right past the simplest stuff. Right, because it's like common vernacular, especially yeah. in the church world. In. <laughs> um, so they're sent, but now they're sending it to churches too. Like if they go on a website and you know, Bill Smith, worship leader. Nope, you can't use that. You got to stop using that term. And so they, after getting dragged through social media, as people started posting that they'd got these cease and desist letters, their response is, We literally coined the phrase worship leader, the company claims on their website. 
However, the company has only just recently begun to pursue legal action against anyone using the phrase. And here's here's why. Owning and managing, and managing our trademark is part of stewarding the mission that God has laid on our business. And we take that very seriously, they wrote. Most recently, with the passing of our founder and new partnership that we formed, we've been a bit behind. But we're now getting caught up and plan to continue to defend our trademark, as we have for decades. Well, you only got the trademark in 2016. I don't know if they know what the word decades mean. Doesn't matter. But it's not eight years. They haven't even like reached the minor threshold of decade yet. <laughs> the facts don't matter here. The sentiment is what they want to get across. Yes. <laughs> but my favorite is they end it with, and as for anyone who feels let down about no longer using the term, authentic media wants to remind you that God has so much creativity that you can lean in on your own gifting and come up with your own name. Oh, my God. But you want to know the funny thing? And this was on a different deal. I'm not reading this. Hmm. Authentic media punishes like, or punishes public. They probably punish anyone that reads them though. Hmm. Um, they publish magazines that are for the evangelical church world. And one of their magazines is for people that lead worship at church called, the magazine is called Worship Leader. So I don't think they're thinking this through because it seems to me that if you are, say, a leader of worship at a church and you do get that magazine, you just cancel it. And if every church in the U.S. canceled any publication by authentic media, go ahead and try to defend your copyright because eventually you're going to run out of money because your source of income will be gone. Oops. But, you know, to me, that just seems sort of, I don't know, not jesus -y. Of course it's not. But see, just like you said, hypocrisy runs amok. It never takes a day off. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just feel like that's more... Let me... Let me... See, I'm trying to think. It just seems more Ebenezer Scrooge than Jesus. <laughs> Obviously, I'm talking Ebenezer Scrooge uh, pre-visit from ghosts. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he, he wouldn't let Cratchit go home. Yeah. 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 Mm -mm -mm. But yeah, I just saw that and thought, holy crap, that just is so dumb. Now that you say that, not, and yes, that is a that is a ridiculous, a ridiculous show of force, if I can put it that way. Because I guess they thought they were doing something, but mildly unrelated to that, but related to the thing you just said before it. I wonder if we could do prominent members of the Republican Party like Ebenezer Scrooge was done and send them ghost three 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 spirits <laughs> like hit one of them a week okay <laughs> it's in matt gates <laughs> god the, the ghost of the ghost of congress past <laughs> and present and future 
where he's where he's sitting rotting in a retirement home because no one will love him. Right. And then they could get visited by the ghost of hypocrisy current. Right. Or present, right? <laughs> he doesn't even say anything, just goes the ghost just sits there and just smiles at him like Okay. Here's my idea. Mm. I probably shouldn't say this, but oh. I'm going to say it and I can't stop myself. Please do I need to stop you? Do I have to stop you? Well, I was gonna say, <laughs> what if what if a a large group of people got together and they started going to um like conservative evangelicals homes dressed as ghosts and they could like chant things at them? And then to show that they're not being Christian, they could like burn a cross. <clears throat> sounds... Do you think that they would appreciate that? That tactic sounds strangely familiar. Oh, you're right. Because truth be told, oh my gosh, I'm getting ready to follow in your footsteps. I think we've gone, I think we've gone just about as far off the rails as we need to at this point. <laughs> so I was getting ready to say some of them might. Might run out there and join it. But anyway, <laughs> they're like, oh, hey, <laughs> hey, Bob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, we're back. We're, we're, we're coming. We're coming back. We're going to land the plane. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry I took us <laughs> down that dark road, listening, friends. I apologize. Ooh. I knew that I needed to stop myself and I was unable to stop myself. But I do feel that it proved a valid point. <laughs> I think you're right. And listening, friends, this may have something to do with the fact that it is technically the end of the work week for us. So we might feel a little, a little bit more liberal, no pun intended than usual. It might be that, I don't know, but forgive us and hang in there. We're good. We're good. Yeah. It's, it's all good. And, it's good. And with that, <laughs> that was the end of my WTF. Boy, howdy folks. Oh, uh, my I just goodness. Said, boy, howdy. What the, what is it? 1950? the hell is wrong with me good god it might be because i say boy howdy all the time i don't know what's wrong with me so i can't i can't explain it for you but it does kind of feel good to say it it's i can't explain that either okay i think we need to bring boy howdy back (laughs) boy howdy make america boy howdy again big big yellow hats boy howdy Listening friends, forgive us. If you've been with us this long, you probably have been forgiving us. So we appreciate it. So Yes, we definitely do. And we would really like to know that you have forgiven us by going to buymeacoffee.com backslash hyperfocus pods and buy us a coffee to show that you have indeed forgiven us. That you forgive us and that you support our future endeavors. And those are in the works, but they do include making sure that we show you our appreciation. Never fear. Plans are always in the works with us. So just saying that's right. That way we can keep providing you content that's going to need forgiveness. On a regular basis. And that was a hell of a transition and I'm quite proud of that. Me too. To be perfectly honest with you. It's it's wonderful. We're doing pretty good. We're on a roll. But yeah, yeah. And with that, I think you are going to tell us about somebody that has probably done something noteworthy. 
I most certainly am. And as we stress every time we do, I guess you say a profile, whether it be in celebration of a particular month or just a random episode, we try to focus on people that aren't as well known in the uh, wider stratosphere. So it took me a minute to settle on somebody that I, I wanted to, that I found interesting. And not that all these kind of stories aren't interesting, but this one especially spoke to me. So today I'm going to talk to everyone about a lady called Edmonia Lewis. And she was considered the first professional BIPOC. And by when I say BIPOC, I mean Black Indigenous Person of Color, the acronym sculptor in the United States. She was born and she's actually, there's three different dates given for her birth year, 1842, 1844, and 1854. And that'll, that'll make sense here later as we get further into her story. So, okay. Regardless of, what official date? And, and most scholars nowadays lean towards 1844. But regardless of that, she was born in upstate New York. Um, most scholars agree also on it was probably somewhere near Albany. July 4th, as a matter of fact, 1844. At birth, she was given the name Wildfire because she happened to be a mixed African-American and Native American Mississauga Ojibwe heritage. And I um, apologize if there's any indigenous First Nations listening to us. If I massacre that name, I try my best not to. <sighs> anyway, so she, like I said, she was considered the first African-American slash Native American indigenous sculptor, sculptor to achieve national and then international prominence. And she began to gain that prominence in the United States during the Civil War. And by the end of the 19th century, she remained the only Black woman artist who had participated in and been recognized to any extent by the American artistic mainstream. And her work is known for incorporating themes relating to Black people and Indigenous peoples of the Americas into what's called neoclassical style sculpture. And for any art majors or art in, or creative and client folks in our listening audience, you'll know what that looks like. Something reminiscent of what like, um, oh, what's that fellow? Michelangelo used to do that kind of, uh, his sculpture of David, something along those lines. And she's very talented. And I'll make sure listening friends that I include some examples of her artwork when we post our socials around this episode because you really get a feel for the talent that she was working with and with the things that she was up against during this time which you can probably imagine she was incredibly gifted i'll put it that way so yeah to have broke through that time frame she had to have been yes so again somewhere around 1844 Somewhere in upstate New York, she was born and given the name Wildfire. Her father worked as a gentleman's servant, and he was West Indian and lived as a free person of color. Her mother, who was part Chippewa, was an artist in her own right, and she made moccasins and other trinkets to sell to tourists. 
Unfortunately, she was orphaned by the age of five. And so Lewis went to live with her aunts near Niagara Falls. And by the support of a half-brother by the name of Samuel, who was financially successful, he was able to fund her education. Part of the education was spent at an order of African-American nuns in Baltimore, Maryland, and at a co-educational school in upstate New York before she finally ended up at Oberlin College in Ohio, which is one of the first colleges in the country to start admitting women and people of color. And she started going there in 1859. Now, even though Oberlin had this policy of being far more liberal than most other colleges and universities at the time, their students weren't quite. The student population at the time was about a thousand. Lewis was one of only 30 students of color. And she later said that she was subject to daily racism and discrimination. She and other female students were rarely given the opportunity to participate in the classroom or speak at public meetings. Despite this, she hung in there and continued her studies until an unfortunate incident in the winter of 1862. And this was just after the start of the Civil War, just for time context sake. She was hanging out one evening with uh, two other classmates by the name of Maria Miles and Christina Eines. And the three women, all boarding in a faculty member's home by the name of Reverend Keep, they were all there that evening and they planned to go sleigh riding with some young men later the day. But before the slaying, Lewis served her friends a drink of spiced wine. Shortly after that, the other two young women, Miles and Eins, fell severely ill. Doctors examined them and concluded that the two women had some sort of poison in their system. Um, in, I'll say in the common vernacular, better known as Spanish fly. For a time, it wasn't certain whether or not the two young women would survive, but days later... They were Bill Cosby? Hush. Days later, it became apparent that the two women would recover. And initially, authorities took no accident. And I have no information on any of what you just said. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help it. Yes, you could, but it's, it's fine, I suppose. <laughs> News of the incident spread rapidly throughout the state. And this is no wonder. I mean, think about the year and in, in what we're talking about here. And in the town of Oberlin, especially, where the general population was not as progressive as at the college. And I pause right there. Because you just heard by her own account how she was treated at the school. If the rest of the town wasn't as progressive as the school population. Yeah, that that couldn't have been pleasant you will find out how unpleasant while she was walking home alone one night she was dragged into an open field by unknown assailants badly beaten and left for dead after the attack local authorities arrested her charging her with poisoning her friends john mercer langston who was an oberlin college alumnus and the first african-american lawyer in ohio represented lewis during her trial and although most witnesses spoke against her and she did not testify, the charges were dismissed. 
The contents of the victim's stomach, I guess they had been pumped, had not been analyzed. And therefore, there was no real evidence of poisoning. But So she was found pretty much not guilty, but the rest of her time at the college was unfortunately not a good experience. Well, if it was bad before, it was worse later yeah. on. Yeah. About a year after the poisoning trial, she was accused of stealing artists' materials from the college and also acquitted because, again, of lack of evidence. Only a few minutes after this, she was charged with aiding and abetting a burglary. And at this point, there's two different stories about what happened. One story says she had had enough and she left. Another story said that the college said, yeah, we can't have you anymore. And they dismissed her. Either way, she left before she could graduate. But I'm kind of getting ahead here. Just last year in 2022, she was awarded a posthumous degree by the college. Hmm. That was nice of them. Isn't it? So after this, she ended up in Boston, Massachusetts, and trained under a portrait sculptor by the name of Edward Brackett. Now, many sculptors at the time were or did study anatomy because it helps especially if you're doing full figure sculpting. But those kind of classes, not surprisingly, were limited to white men. So unfortunately, she couldn't study in the way she wanted to be able to. So she focused early on primarily on something called portrait medallions. And these are small, generally circular, single-sided portraits, in her case, made out of clay and, pas- clay and plaster. And they were like profiles. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, some of those medallions included well-known abolitionists, including William Lord Garrison, Charles Sumner, and Wendell Phillips. And she also worked on sculptural busts, including our man Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant. She also did a very nice one of Hiawatha. Mm-hmm. Very lovely work. And again, I'll, I'll make sure to include some of those um, on our socials for you guys to take a look at. So um, with those works, she earned enough money to finance her first trip to Europe in 1865. And she went around Europe for a while until she settled in Rome and joined a community of American artists and produced, designed and finished numerous sculptures. And the reason why this is interesting is at the time, most Italian sculptures sculptors would design a sculptor but then hire out someone to actually sculpt it because she couldn't afford to do that she did it all on her own and naturally that made some people question whether or not she actually did right how is this not surprising Hmm. um yep while there though she continued to work on busts and things of that nature and then started working on full-scale sculptures, and her most famous of these was called The Death of Cleopatra, and it took her four years to complete, and when it was finished, weighed 3,000 pounds. She shipped it all the way back to the States, to Philadelphia, to have it displayed in what was called the Centennial Exhibition they were having at a local museum. 
at first she was afraid that the museum was going to reject it, but they accepted it and placed it in the section of the museum for American artists, where critics mostly enjoyed it. But many male critics had a problem with the fact that Cleopatra was topless. <clears throat> her other <Okay>. sculptures, <laughs> her other sculptures include Hagar, who, if you're familiar with the Bible, was the maidservant to Abraham's wife, Sarah. And she also designed several group sculptures depicting Native Americans and their respective civilizations. And those group sculptures were influenced by the Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poem, The Song of Hiawatha. And again, being part indigenous, you know, that was part of her culture too, to an extent. So now, as far as the death of Cleopatra sculpture, which again, I'll include a picture of because it's her best known work for as well as she's known, I guess you could say. Uh, that particular exhibition, even though it was listed for sale, wasn't sold then. And it ended up all the way in Chicago at the Chicago, the Chicago Interstate Industrial Expo. But no one bought it there either. So somehow the statue had its own trip, I guess you could say, and wandered around several areas in the country until it settled down. So after it was removed from the industrial expo, it ended up in a Chicago saloon. And then a racehorse owner and gambler named Blind John Condon bought the sculpture and placed it on the racetrack grave of a well-loved horse. The sculpture sat right in front of the crowd at the Harlem racetrack in Forest Park, which is a Chicago suburb. And the sculpture stayed there for some years while the area around it changed up. After the racetrack came a golf course, a Navy munition site, and finally a bulk mail center. And there the sculpture still stood. People came by and graffitied it. Boy Scouts tried to clean it up by repainting it. And finally, it was rescued and delivered to the Forest Park Historical Society. And a heart historian by the name of Marilyn Richardson finally cleaned it up and it is now on display again. And I believe from my readings, I believe that is one of the only pieces, remaining pieces intact of um, Lewis's work. Very few of her, her works have, have uh, made it to the present day. But when I tell you not having had access to a lot of the formal training that sculptors did at that time, when I tell you the work is fantastic, mm, it's beautiful stuff. So, um, and I'm sorry, let me just clarify. The sculpture is actually at the Smithsonian. Yeah. And, it, oh, yeah. And they were able to restore it based on a single surviving photograph. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, it. It's amazing what um, the people that restore sculptures and paintings can do. Mm -hmm. It really is. Like, I'll see, it might have been a fictional movie, but I know it was based on a, a, on a real life thing where they showed the, uh, the teams of people that went in and helped clean and restore the Sistine Chapel. Yeah. Like, that is meticulous work, obviously. But the fact that they have to go, you know, clean up of anything that's built up over the, the centuries 
and then go back in and touch things up as close as they could get to the actual color and material without ruining the overall. Okay. It's, it's ridiculously metic- meticulous stuff. Oh, it it's insane. We had some sort of painting in the uh, archives at the museum where I work. And it, this is, this is a good 10 years ago, at least. And they got in contact with somebody that restores painting and they put it in the, uh, they were in between exhibits in the temporary gallery and they set her up in there and they put a couple of webcams on her and she spent like six weeks restoring that painting mm-hmm. and it was open. So you could go and watch her do it. And it was really interesting. It is not something that I am capable of doing. I do not have the patience. I do not have the tactile ability to be that precise, <laughs> mm-hmm. but the restorers are almost artists in their own right. Oh, they are. They most definitely are. And matter of fact, listening friends, I've just I've just drawn a parallel in my own brain from my opening until right now. Because if you are a fan of the Ghostbuster movies, you know that in Ghostbusters 2, Sigourney Weaver ended up at a museum working on restoration. That That's is how true. she atten- that is how she attracted the attention of Vigo the destroyer, is that his name? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, Vigo. Good old Vigo. Vigo. She is no here. If you can't tell by now, I love those movies. Anyway. It's the, it's the only <laughs> Ghostbuster villains mentioned in a Bobby Brown song. That is correct. And listening friends, Bobby Brown did indeed do the music for Ghostbusters too. It's no coincidence that two black guys managed to do uh, key songs for two of the biggest movies of the 80s. Yeah. I mean, it may it may not mean anything outside of this moment, but it means something right now. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) other works that Lewis did in the course of her career, especially when she was uh, overseas in Rome, included busts of John Brown. We've mentioned him here before Mm -hmm. and Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. And listening friends that may not sound familiar here in terms of our podcast, but he's very familiar to us because that was the colonel that led the 54th Massachusetts, which was the subject of the fantastic 1989 movie, Glory. Yes, played by Matthew Broderick. Mm-hmm. He was off his fresh off Ferris Bueller. Anyway, so that's the kind of things that she was into while she was overseas. And it's interesting. It's not really coincidental that as early as those times, and we've we've touched on this before when we talked about other prominent um Black Americans during that time period that they found a tremendous amount of warm reception and success when going to Europe. Go figure. Yeah, shocking. <laughs> I don't. It? I don't see why she came back. Honestly, that's why Tina Turner's still over there. What are you saying? Anyway, that's but <laughs> that's the entire point. Unfortunately, though, by the late 1880s, she disappeared from the public eye. And after um, interest in her was revived these last couple of years and and folks were trying to research, it was only recently discovered that she actually passed away in London on September 17th, 1907, of something called Bright's disease. So, But it took a while for people to realize, to be able to track her down and realize that what had happened to her, because with all the talent that she had, again, she managed a fair amount of success which was already extraordinary in the time period. But again, and this happens, unfortunately, a lot of times with creative folk that 
sometimes they just kind of diminish output and they just kind of drift off. Yeah. Take, for instance, somebody, somebody, everybody knows now, uh, Picasso, he broke, Da Vinci broke. And it was only after their death that they became famous. It's a weird thing because you would think with the kind of talent that artists like them had, and in her case, you know, her as well, you think they would have been more lauded when they were alive. But no, these things don't often happen. It's only after they pass. All of a sudden, oh, this is pretty good. And then their stuff sells for 5.2 million at Sotheby's or some such thing. So, (laughs) so you can only hope as an artist that your stuff is good enough. If it gets popular after you die, that your children and grandchildren are able to financially reap the benefits. It is an interesting thing. So I'm hoping whatever it is I'm doing right now, my child will will reap the benefits sometime down the flock. (laughs) Right. 50 years down the road, when old episodes of our podcast are selling for tens of dollars. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm hoping our children make out from that. Yeah, that's, that's the hope and the dream. But, you know, you know. We'll keep going. They may have, they may have by that time found some way to extend life. And we may be around here to, to torture our children for a much longer time than anticipated. Who knows? Anything can happen. But interesting enough, as far as Lewis's style was concerned, and this is something I think a lot of Black creatives during this time and for a, a good time, even now, really, had to contend with that artists obviously tend to work in realms that they're familiar with. So in her case, you know, being both Black and Indigenous, she would want to make sculptures that look like her, but there was the risk, there was a risk offending her white audience. And so she had to make her sculptures resemble them just a little bit more than she could let them resemble herself. Well, if they resembled her, then she would have been, you know, whoa. Yeah, or whatever the equivalent might have been back in the day. Because... I bring that up because the more things change, the more they stay the same. It's true. And this, in talking about her and how she chose to approach her work, it's reminiscent of what we were talking about Zora Neale Hurston um, last month in that they wanted to be able to do things a certain way, but then they also had the eyes of white Americans often who were also patrons that were funding some of their work or some of their travel. So they had to take those kind of things into consideration as well. And I can't imagine how stifling that is, yeah. honestly, to be able to want to do what you want to do, but then you have people looking over your shoulder where, you know, I don't like the way that that's makes me uncomfortable. And all of a sudden you have to, you know, start from scratch because you have to make, in order to be successful, you have to make compromises. So <clears throat> yep. go figure. But that is a story of Edmonia Lewis. It quietly lesser known public figure, but just as important. And me being a creative, like I said, that's part of, that's the biggest part of the reason why her story appealed to me. It's just the sheer fact that she was one of the first, the first one of the first well-regarded ones. And during the time period that she was regarded in was truly fascinating. So and not to mention her work really speaks for herself, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's gorgeous stuff. Matter of fact, just so you can get a sense. And listening friends, I promise I will include some on you're, um, you're gonna send it to me on the whiteboard, aren't you? I am. I am, I am, I am, I am. So that is oh, the Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I'm going to assume that this is the Cleopatra one. Yes. Based on uh, what you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. 1876. Isn't that something? Yeah. And then, okay, that's a hand sculpture. And then here's uh, some of her busts. And you yeah. see like the, the style that she's working in. And this is yeah, a woman yeah. who, who did not, this Hiawatha, who did not have access to proper, proper anatomy classes because I had an anatomy class. When I was in school, and if you haven't figured out listening friends, I was an art major. We have to have, we had to study anatomy, probably not to the extent maybe that we should have, but we studied the basics of it. Like you had to know how, you know, muscles and tendons and all these things work together because turned right. a certain way, the human body is going to present this muscle more than will the other. It, there's a point to it. She didn't have the advantage of this. And yet she was turning out works like this. Yeah, she's really good. And that's her right there. So, yep, that is the story of Ms. Lewis. And this is a sculpture here called Forever Free. So, yeah. Yeah, wow, she was. She was really good. Like, look, look her at that. Folks, listen to look, friends, look her up. Look her up because this one I thought was really cute. This yeah, is it, Sorry, go how, ahead. How, how does that have the face of meatloaf? Hush. Anyway. <laughs> 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 and that's the that's the sculpture of Hagar right there. Oh wow, yeah. Yeah, no, she she was really good, guys. Absolutely. So yes. I I liked I like that story about I like any stories about artists really. And um just to not to go too far off the rails, but one of my favorites is Da Vinci. I understand the stories about him. I know, I know he cut off his ear. I get it. And if you were if you were into the arts and you did some research on that fella right there, you would know. You think Van Gogh? Van Gogh. See, sleepy Van Gogh. Sorry, Vincent Van Gogh. my brain was like, wait, what? Oh. Yeah, I'm. I, thank you, thank you for the taking the taking the save for me. Oh my gosh, it would have been ruined. So a lot of people naturally were concerned about Van Gogh, but historians with having as much as they had to go off of con have probably come to the, the basic conclusion that he was quite probably schizophrenic and that he didn't cut off his ear to prove his love to a woman. One, he only cut the earlobe off. Two, it was most likely because he was hearing voices, which is unfortunately a symptom of schizophrenia. Yes. So his story is fascinating for that reason. And they say that ex probably explains his painting style and his best right. known, one of his best known works, Starry Night, that was probably how he actually saw the stars. Yeah. And if you ever want to see, even though it's fiction, if you ever want to see a great sort of portrayal of Van Gogh, believe it or not, there is a Doctor Who episode with the 11th Doctor known as Matt Smith or portrayed by Matt Smith. I believe it was his first season as the 11th Doctor. And it's with Karen Gilliam or Gilliam, however you say it anyway. They went and hung out with Van Gogh for a bit, but it is an incredibly amazing episode. And uh, without giving spoilers away for what is now an almost 10-year-old show, the ending is quite emotional. I, in, in continuing the off-the-rails route that we're going and to piggyback on what you just said, listening friends, I only became acquainted with Matt Smith last year. I am, I am ashamed to say it, but yes, only last year from House of the Dragon. <laughs> yeah. 
So he's he's an interesting actor, just from that alone. So that's on my list sometime this year to explore his previous works. Yes. Anyway. Anyway. That's 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 me, the creative dabbling in the things that I like to dabble in, friends. So yep. that is the story of Ms. Edmonia Lewis. Look her up. I promise I'll include pictures of her work, but look her up in more detail. She has a fascinating story, only part of which we've gone over today. So Yep. And uh, with that, we're kind of at the end. But Kenyatta and I are quite excited. If everything goes according to plan, uh, when we record next Thursday, we're going to be recording with a very special guest. We're going to keep it as a surprise for you until that actual episode, but we are going to say that this person is TikTok famous. Mm-hmm. We're not kidding, folks. So block <laughs> out your calendars, however you want to do it. Yes. We're, we're both quite excited to talk to this particular individual. Yes. And we we we're both crossing our fingers and our toes that everything is works out and we're able to do this next Thursday. Yes. So as we know, you always do stay tuned. Join us again. In the meantime, if you don't follow our socials on Facebook and the gram, please do so like our posts, share our stuff. It improves our visibility and lets other people know we're out here. And you can help that by letting your friends, family, the horses in the field as you drive down the road, whoever will listen, let them know what we're doing over here. If you'd like it, just as Jack mentioned earlier, drop us a couple of cents. We have plans and we want to make sure we show you guys that your diligence and attention is appreciated. So that is true. That is true. With that, adieu. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review, hit that like button, and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback is valuable, and we welcome it. If you would like to contact, connect with, or just want to see what we talk about between episodes, you can find us on Facebook under our podcast name, on Instagram at K-A-Y-A-N-D-J-A-Y-S-T-W, our website, podpage.com, slash Kenyatta-Jack-Save-The-World, or email at k.j.savetheworld at gmail.com. If you would like to learn about and contribute to our chosen charities, you can do so at Service Dog Project at servicedogproject.org and Black Women's Health Initiative at bwhi.org. Kenyatta and Jack Save the World is a product of Hyperfocus Podcasts.